0: Welcome back to another episode of the AI Writers Podcast. I'm your co-host, Leanne Prescott, and joining me as usual is Tom. Tom, how are you?
1: I am good, thank you, Leanne. Three women's out of three always makes me cheerful, so hopefully Liverpool can keep drawing (laughs) up against Leicester.
0: Yeah, definitely, and obviously we're we're doing this off the back of the Champions League and Carabao Cup draw, so Liverpool are in the thick of it at the moment. Um, Chelsea in the Carabao Cup, which no one really seems to care about, which is is a, a story in itself. Um, and then the Champions League were Napoli, um, oh, I'm trying to think PSG at, and Red Star Belgrade. So very, very interesting draw there. But today we've got two brilliant guests on, um, in Hamza. Hamza, how are you?
2: Uh, very good. Thank you. Uh, a tough couple of weeks ahead. Well, after the international break, I guess. Uh, so that's to sort of dread and look forward to at the same time. But yeah, uh, as. Always looking forward to be on. We've got uh, a really good article by Scott as well. So I'm looking forward to a look at that.
0: Yeah. As you said, Liverpool are, are going into a patch after the international break, which will be the real first test. The first three games, obviously, it's never easy in the Premier League, but you almost expect Liverpool to pick up those points, especially the way we've been going recently. But, but it will be a test after the international break. So that will be a test of all the, all the positivity. Um, but Scott, how are you?
3: Very good. Thank you. I, I must say I'm excited for the international break. First time I've been like that for a, for a while. Well, since before the World Cup, basically. Uh, so yeah, it's good. And good to see three Liverpool players and Adam Lalana also involved with that squad. I don't know if he can as a player at the moment, but somehow he's in there.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's always good to see the, the Liverpool players involved in that and Joe Gomez as well, which is great for him. Um, but we'll crack on with our first article, which we're going to start with Hamzers. Um, it, it got a bit of stick. Probably just because of the title because it's actually a very, very good article in itself and I hope people did bother to read it and not just send in their Twitter backlash about how could you possibly think Virgil Van Dyke is overrated. Um, but Hamza, I'll, I'll pass it over to you just to discuss your piece because it's, it's a really, really interesting one.
2: Yeah, so, um, yeah, that was my title, my bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, I had a more reasonable title, but I thought I really, really want to make the point uh, – as aggressive as possible, because this is a, an article that's designed to be provocative in the sense that it's trying to make people think a bit more about how we view our defence, how we view, uh, view the players in our defence, and how we try to be fair to them as possible. Uh, so a lot of stuff about Van Dijk has come in over the past few weeks, past few months. Uh, he is undoubtedly a really, really good defender. We've seen the impact he makes, but I think to a large degree that's overstated. And calls that he's the best defender in the world, uh, are premature and probably over the top in my opinion. Um, Jamie Carragher compared him to Alan Hansen, and I think that's doing a lot, a lot of disrespect to Alan Hansen. Uh, at his best, he redefined football for, for us as a club. Uh, comparisons to Maldini have come in as well. Yap Stam. These are players that weren't just the best defenders in the world at the time. They actually redefined what it meant to be a centre-back, what it meant to be a defender. And uh Van Dijk at the moment, as good as he is, he isn't doing that yet. And then when we think of the best players in the world, we're thinking of what they've achieved. Van Dijk's only been at Liverpool for six months and undoubtedly he's done a really, really... A bit more than six months, sorry. Undoubtedly he's done a, a really, really Im- impressive amount of work in that time. But when you say best player in the world, you're looking at players like uh, Sergio Ramos, Rafa Varan, These are serial Champions League winners. Uh players that have won the World Cup uh, with abilities and skills that are almost at the very top of the game. But what I also wanted to have a look at here was uh, the errors or areas for improvement in Van Dyke's game. Uh, and on the the Tactics podcast with uh, Paul Dahlish, he mentioned that he has a propensity when ball goes into a wide area to just uh, follow the ball that wide or take a zonal position at the front post and watch the ball in that wide area and uh, the ball will come in and he'll lose the people uh, that are in behind him. So we mentioned this in the Crystal Palace match, drew a few examples of a number of times that he did it over the previous season and that West Ham example in the first game. And it, as it so happened, it happened again against Brighton. Uh, I think Pascal Gross ran in behind with about five minutes to go and got the header, which Alisson saved. The issue is, though, that in my opinion, is that if another de- defender did that, be it Dejan Lovren, uh, on, a, on a different day, Alisson doesn't save that. Jason Lawrence going to get loads of stick, even if Allison does save it, uh, because that's the way Liverpool play. You have those one mo- moment where you need to defend as a defend as a Liverpool defender uh, in the whole game, and that's what counts. It's not about uh, the 85 minutes that you're on the ball. It's about those five minutes where you're under pressure, uh, and I think. Those are, there's an area in which Van Dyke needs to improve and we should, if he makes an error, we shouldn't be going around, oh yeah, he's still the best friend in the world. We should be fair to him because we're fair to other players and we give other players a stick. And also I think it's a disservice done to the rest of the players in the team that have come in. Take Andy Robertson, uh, in from that first game in December who has been absolutely fantastic, super consistent. And I don't think I can put a single goal that we've conceded uh, down to a personal error by him. I'm just trying to think, but non-spring to mind. Uh Trent Alexander-Arnold, superb. Gomez has come in, played really well. Dejan Lovren, when he came in, uh well, when he's been playing, he in that second half of the season especially, he was really, really good. And I think we should give credit to those players. But even then, <laughs> the only person that said Dejan Lovren was the best friend of the world was him. Uh And most of us laughed at that. So I think saying the same for Van Dijk, who's played half a season less than Lovren did at Liverpool last season. I think it's uh, a bit silly, really. I just think we should try and have a bit more perspective on this and be fair to him, fair to the rest of the team, and and be honest, really.
0: Yeah, as I said before, I think it's a really interesting um, article and a really interesting take. We'll start off with with the beginning, obviously, of the the piece. It's quite a long form. And then we'll go on to maybe the, the different aspects of... Sort of disagreeing with Hamza in in some ways, but you you mentioned the figures uh, uh, in the article about how Liverpool were improving irrespective of Van Dijk after that um, demolition job, um, that defeat to Spurs, and how we've actually been the best defence in the league. Um, You know, our record is good; it had been improving. The players were were gelling more. Uh, There seemed to be a bit more communication, a little bit more leadership. Liverpool's back five were doing well. And as you mentioned, it was all down to not just that back four, but the pressing, the defensive contribution of the midfielders, of players like Bobby Firmino and Salah. Um, and then you've obviously got, got Andy Robertson who's come into the team and, and his form has been so good that that's a, that's a contributing factor and, and Trent on the other side as well. So I, I guess Scott, Scott, what's your take on that? Because it is interesting. Liverpool were improving, but does that maybe, is that something that deflects from Van Dyke or is it something that just happens over the course of the season when you suffer a big defeat and, and therefore the manager has those rousing words saying, come on guys, get back on the training pitch, focus on this communication, focus on this aspect of, of, I don't know, the set pieces, the corners, and through that practice, through the course of the season, you develop and you understand the players you're with more and, and because Robertson was so good down the left hand side, that, that benefited everyone.
3: I think the, the big thing was with the defeat was it caused a, it seemed to cause a total reappraisal from Klopp of how they were defending, um, how he wanted them to play, how kind of fast and loose he was willing to allow us to play kind of even against the best teams and then even against teams lower down the league, um, in terms of being, protecting against the counter attack, trying to give the centre backs a little bit more support, be that from a full back who was being a bit more passive be that from a a, a centre midfielder who was being a bit more passive and trying to make sure he stayed the right side of the ball. So we always had kind of three or four guys in in very solid defensive positions. Um, the thing that I think is worth noting with the Van Dijk arrival is not necessarily the the impact he made coming in, because as we've heard, that impact was all... It, the development was already happening. The improvement was happening before him. It was the seamlessness of his transition, as well as the kind of the... The fact that since Van Dyke's arrived, we haven't seen the kind of errors that had been punctuating Liverpool defensive performances before then. I think that's potentially the, the biggest thing you can say about Van Dyke at this point. Because I, I do agree that, that it, there's a bit of hyperbole at the moment about how good he is. But the, the big thing is that, firstly, Liverpool have reappraised how they were defending. But then also how Van Dyke's come in seamlessly, gone into the defensive system, seamlessly taken over the leadership of that defensive system. And there's been a part of the Liverpool backline that has been far less error prone. I don't think we can understate that, uh, contribution from Van Dyke. Yeah,
1: I, I think it's a tough one because on the one hand, there is clear evidence that the defence was improving with or without Van Dyke. And I mean, the evidence is, is split across that back four. There's, pl- there's plenty of players who've played really well in that back four. Carriers was on good form as well. Nevertheless, I, I don't, I still think, I think there's two things for me here that to kind of respond to. I think the first thing is, You've got to look at Van Dyke as a player independent of the impact he's had on Liverpool. And that's something I think is very, very important. Um, we're not, when you say, you know, Van Dyke is one of the best centre backs in the, in, in the league, one of the best centre backs in the world, you're not just looking at his impact on Liverpool. You've got to look at his overall impact and how he's been as a player. And the fact, really, really good centre back. He was one of the best centre backs in the league before we signed him for Southampton. It's worth noting, you know, he was in the team of the year. The year before Liverpool signed him, and he was playing for Southampton at the time. So that's a big step for, a, you know, a Southampton centre-back to make that indicates the sort of form he was indicating over the, over the course of those, that time in the Premier League. Um, he is a, a, he was a big player before he came to Liverpool. And since he's been at Liverpool, he's been virtually faultless. I agree with Hamza to the extent that he's made mistakes, and obviously nobody's perfect, but in the context of this is a centre-back playing at a world-class football club, he's been very very strong. I um, mean he did take a couple of weeks to settle in, but he's he's vastly reduced the number of individual errors. And the other thing that I kind of want to point out is that yes, Liverpool have certainly played better, were playing, were defending better before him in the side, but what I think is worth noting is that Liverpool have had spells where after or for whatever reason they've shifted tact tactics slightly and got on and played a spell of games where they've had to defend well for a spell of games and have but I don't think we've seen anything like the level of longevity that we've seen, and I don't think we would have seen that level of longevity without Van Dijk at the heart of the defence. Um, obviously that's a, that's an opinion, um, but that is an opinion that I hold. One thing I do want to point out is the Robertson factor, because I do think he is a really, really important player. Um, he's virtually shut off any good, good opportunities coming from that left-hand side. As Hamza, I think, pointed out, I can't think of any incidents where he's been Responsible for any goals we've conceded. He's defended really, really well throughout. Um, and I've got his numbers in front of me. When when Robertson has played for Liverpool in the last season and a bit, our expected goals against is 0.72. And our goals against is 0.72. So Liverpool only concedes seven goals in ten games when Robertson plays. It's that straightforward. And that's on merit. So for me, that just indicates that clearly, A, Van Dijk is not the only factor. But B, that... Uh, I mean, here's the thing with defenders, right? With strikers, it's very, very easy to say whether or not a striker is doing well, because you can just point at someone like Harry Kane and go, 25 goals this season, world class, bang, easy. It's, it's a simple metric. With defenders, there are no simple metrics, because defensive areas as a metric is very flawed. Something like tackles doesn't really take into account the fact that as a central defender, you're not, if you, if a central defender is tackling a lot, they're doing something wrong. That's generally considered to be a thing. Similar with interceptions, clearances, blocks, all those kinds of numbers help, but you can't build a picture of a defender through stats um, so when you then are forced to look at a defender's stats you tend to look at the team stats which is something that Hamza and I have both done in these situations you look at how many goals the Liverpool concede with Van Dijk in the team and on that front he performs really really well but um, as we've pointed out so do others and that indicates that there's definitely a systematic change what I would say is that with Van Dijk I, I agree we, he does produce less errors he's a, he's a much less Error-prone defender in a system that encourages error players being error-prone, and I don't think that's changed massively. I do think the system still does tend towards individual errors, and I think Van Dyke's done really well to cut that out. And equally, I think I think Van Dijk's a phenomenal centre-back. I think it's that straightforward. I think I do think Hams is right. I think we are tending to overgo him and over overstate his impact on the defence. That for me is very important. I think we can overstate that. And we are overstating that. But nevertheless, I still think he's a world class defender because he's got the track record and he doesn't make a load of mistakes. I agree with, the, for example, the gross error. That is a mistake. And that's a mistake that you don't want to see. But it's not a big mistake. It's a small mistake that I think is maybe not even completely attributable to him. Uh, um, So for me, yeah, I think it's a bit of both ways. I do agree with Hamza that he's not necessarily as good as people are making him out to be. But equally, I think he's had a storming start to the season. He doesn't make many errors. He's had a huge impact on this side. Um, and I do think he deserves a lot of credit for that either way.
0: Hamza, I'll, I'll get you to come in here just to respond. And I know, obviously, the article has a lot of statistics on Van Dyke in Liverpool without Van Dyke and with Van Dyke. So do you want to talk us through that and any responses you have to, to what Tom and Scott have said there? Uh,
2: yeah, so the point Tom makes about individual errors is, is really important. So even that Spurs match, which is hailed as like a turning point, um, the first goal was a lover and error. The second goal was a love lovren individual error again. And the third or fourth goal was also a goalkeeping error. I can't remember the other one, but I'm pretty sure it was also another defensive error by an individual. And if we look at the defensive record of the, the half season preceding that, so from, I don't know, January 2016, no, 2017 to the to May 2017, we were good defensively. Uh, I I think that Klopp has laid solid defensive foundations and he's adjusted in, in our team in a manner so that they are defending better as a unit. So pressing plays a really important part in this. Teams can't get near our box because we're defending so well with our front three, with our uh, midfield three as well. So when we look at defensive statistics, I think they can be a bit misleading in that regard. And I really would like to focus on. On how much praise Van Dyke gets relative to the other players. Robertson is a really good example. Trent is another really, really good example. They've been absolutely fantastic, yet no one's hailing them as the best, best, uh, fullback in the world or something like that. But Robertson has far greater claim to being the best fullback in the world on his performance over the last season than any other defender in the back forward has for Liverpool or any defender in the league has, uh, to be honest. Uh, I'm not saying he is, but I'm saying that he has a better claim to it and he's not getting the, the response or the appreciation that he deserves because of the amount that's being put onto Van Dijk. To me, it's difficult because he's undoubtedly really good. He's undoubtedly got great qualities, but I'll I'll disagree with Tom again there. When he said that that chance was not a big one, how many chances, if we just think across last season, we gave away so many small chances, but they were always seemed to be put away. That's just how it happened to be. Uh, Maybe because we didn't have a fantastic goalkeeper, uh, as a fantastic goalkeeper as we do this season, or, or that's just the quality of the finishing that we are facing, but it always seems to happen that Liverpool might not give it, give away a single chance in a game, but when we do give away that one chance, they're put away. And Van Dyke has, has been one of those players that is still giving away some chances. And defending is very much about chances that don't happen. Like Tom said, we can't judge, uh, in terms of interceptions, tackles, and so on. It's about, uh, reducing the amount of chances by preemptively, uh, positioning yourself or positioning your, your teammates in a way that that, something doesn't happen. So if there's a ball coming into the box and there's a, there's two men free, you've got to position yourself in a manner that's going to be able to get the ball away. Uh, and maybe it won't come up on your clearances or it may, won't come up on your interceptions. Uh, but in doing that, you've dis- disincentivized the, the person that was going to cross the ball in from crossing it in. You've stopped that from happening. And that's what defending is about. Uh, and I think Van Dyke has a number of those qualities which he, he's used so far, but it, he's not perfect yet. Uh, he has the ability to be really, really good, but it's about judging him and being fair because w- we're really, really tough on players like Moreno. We're really, really tough on players like Lovren. We're tough on Henderson. Uh, but Van Dijk gets away with it because he's the fan favourite. Carrius got absolutely slaughtered when he made mistakes. I know that they're, they're, they're in uh, high-pressure situations, but even those uh, in the season before where they, uh, they weren't really big games. Uh, but just because... It, even ones that he didn't get away with... Oh, that, that he did get away with when uh, maybe Lovren... Uh, slips up, let a play, let's play, a player through, uh, he'll, he'll get in trouble for that. People, will, uh, have a go at him. You'll see the analysis from pundits saying he's not good enough if he's making a mistake and even if it isn't punished. But Van Dyke seems to be getting away with that. And that's what I just really do like to come back to.
0: Do you, do you think that's maybe, I agree with your, your idea that, um, you know, some players are getting more plaudits than others, such as Van Dyke. And I do agree, you know, Gary Neville, who is perennially critical of every player who graces the, graces the Anfield turf. He's even come out and said, Van Dyke is a monster like Yap Sam. But, but don't you think it's, it's maybe potentially a case of Liverpool have had some really poor centre-backs over the years, really poor defensive record and, and we're in such a good shape now that people are, are believing Liverpool are really in a title race or could be. And so when you've got a player like Van Dijk, okay, he made a mistake against Brighton or or a potential mistake there that could have cost us a goal, as you've highlighted in your article. And he he may make a couple over the course of the season. But because he's such an improvement on what we had, that people are therefore so quick to praise him and so quick to lord all this on him. Because from what Liverpool were to what they are now is pretty unrecognisable. And we've said that okay, it's not all down to Virgil van Dijk, but when you've got a player who comes in and who exudes that authority and is so communicative at the heart of the defence, that's got to be a big factor. And, and for me, I, I love van Dijk. I do I do get where you're coming from in terms of the the plaudits being maybe a little bit OTT, but I think when even when we're talking about how good other people have been, sometimes you've got to look at it and say, actually, van Dijk is potentially the glue here. He's come in and and last season in that Champions League running, he really improved Dejan Lovren who looked a a different player because he was able to really bring his game back to the basics like his Southampton days with Jose Font who was the dominant centre-back if you like and and Dejan Lovren was therefore able to feel less pressure. He wasn't the the main guy in in defence and we've seen that and then this year with with Joe Gomez coming in who was criticised a lot last season for misreading the flight of the ball against the likes and man City um and, and Leroy Sane and now he's come in he's settled really well and okay that's that's partly down to the players and their improvement but I think Van Dyke is a huge factor in that and the way he would talk to them and and really reassure them and and that sort of calmness and communication has to be a big overall glue into this this improving defensive pitcher but I, I know um I know Tom wants to jump in here and then and then we'll get Scott's view on on things that have been said.
1: Um, yeah, um, I have a couple of things I wanted to say. The first thing is that i I well, I'll start with the ones I disagree with Hamza on. <laughs> um, first of all, I think I don't think it's necessarily fair to compare Van Dyke with the likes of Lovren and Anne Moreno because it's not just the fact that he makes errors, it's the quantity of the errors he makes and the types of errors that he makes because I think in terms of quantity, we've seen a lot over the last few years that Dejan Lovren I think gets a bit of an unfair rap based on his performances for the last twelve months. But if you actually look at his performances and you look at the amount of errors he's made over the over his Liverpool career, you can understand why people still criticise him for those. Because just because he's playing well now, he's got a good centre back alongside him. The the fact is he and Moreno still have have made a lot of errors over a long period of time, Um, whereas Van Dijk hasn't made a lot of errors over a long period of time. And I think his errors are smaller errors. For example, you look at the gross error. The gross error is not good it's not it's not obviously and i don't it's not now necessarily about the quality of the chance it's about the the type of error i think it's it's a slight error in van dyke's positioning and it's a slight error in the sense that he gets caught a little bit ball watching but those are those i think those are sort of they're tweaks more than big errors whereas Lovren's sort of errors he will like head the ball straight to a striker or he'll try and dribble someone and get picked off in his own third or he'll fall over and pass the ball straight to harry kane and these are all errors that we've seen him do these are big big errors that are ultimately not... It's not just about whether or not they cost you, it's the type of error that you make. and but the outcome's the same, right?
0: Even if not you are just, but falling over... it's not over just and, about... Well,
1: sorry, go on. Well,
2: it must be the outcome though, right? Because even if it is a small error, the outcome's the the, the big thing that we're looking at when we're looking at defence, and when we're looking at the team and the result, because that's the, the most important thing, right? If we're looking at a result, it doesn't really matter if, if it's a small miscontrol of the ball or a massive misreading of the ball. If the outcome is the same, it's a goal against us, that, that's an error that we should be looking at and saying, okay, they've got it wrong here. I, I but, agree.
1: I'm, I'm trying to make the point about perception rather than necessarily, because I th- for me, I think the quantity is a bigger thing than the quality, but I'm saying that, you know, Van Dyke's errors aren't the sort of stuff you can put the Benny Hill theme and create a uh, compilation video to, which is not to say it's fair to judge him by that, but that's the majority of the reason why people don't do it. You, you and me, for example, Hamza, we're good, we're good analysers. We, we tend to read the game quite well because we spend a lot of time looking at football, but, Casual viewer doesn't realise that Van Dyke's made a big error in that gross chance. That's the point I'm trying to make here. It's not necessarily about the fact that he makes the mistake. It's the fact how people see it. I looked at that and straight away I went, Van Dyke's made a made a mistake there. A lot of people wouldn't necessarily see it that way, which helps the perception. Is what I'm trying to say, rather than just the outcome. Although I don't necessarily agree that the outcome's the the net thing anyway, because I think a lot of it is about how it goes. Because you know, you know, you could make the same point about a striker if if a striker. If, uh, you know, if Salah has a shot from 20 yards out that hits the post, that's unlucky. Um, if Salah has a, you know, if Salah blazes it over the bar from 2 yards out, the outcome's still the same. We didn't get a goal where maybe we could have done, or maybe we should have done, but it's a different type of error. Do you, know, do you see what I'm trying to say there? I think
2: the perception, though, only, only exists because of the, the outcome, which is actually fortunate, because he's got away with it, right? If you make an error and you get away with it, no one really minds. If, if you're a striker, here's a good example. If you're a striker, and you miss, uh, five one-on-ones in a match, but you score the sixth one, uh, and you win one-nil. sorry right. You got away with it. You won one-nil. If you're a defender and you make that one mistake and you get away with it, no one really minds because Alisson saved him on this occasion. If that was Mignole in goal though, that's a goal. Um, and then, I'm he, glad he
1: you, get... sorry. Go on then. No, 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 okay. I'm glad you mentioned Mignolet because that was the next point I was going to say to agree with you, which is that the big reason, one of the big reasons that we have stopped conceding quite so many goals even before Alisson was just having a competent goalkeeper. Like that that that's one of the big changes I think maybe because I think I think well here we go. Um so with Carrius, I think he didn't maybe get the credit he deserved. Well maybe not the credit he deserved, that's probably unfair. But people didn't re people didn't necessarily attribute the fact that we were improving to Carrius because Carrius wasn't a world class goalkeeper. What people didn't appreciate was that we went from having a goalkeeper in goal who was literal garbage to a goalkeeper in goal who was fine. I think that's a big difference. You know, you've know, you got a goalkeeper who isn't going to be chucking three or four goals every uh, ten games to the opposition. With Mignolet in goal, we just had someone who was always, always going to give the opposition two chances. And I think the, the scary thing about Mignolet is, if you were to watch, I don't like watching compilation videos, I think compilation videos are generally garbage, but if you watch a Mignolet compilation video, so many of the big errors that he's made were were this se- were last season, and that's what's alarming about that. The fact that over four years you can pick out calamitous moments from every single one of his seasons consistently. Um as with Karius, it's really just the Champions League final. There are other moments where you could never really say you got a bit lucky, but the Champions League final is the only one where he really, really messed up. Um and but yeah, the other point I want to make is if I agree with you and argue that Robbo is the best left back in the world, because I think Robo's damn close to being the best left back in the world, and I've written an article on the site saying I think Robbo is the best left back in the Premier League. Can I then, can I then say I also think Van Dijk is one of the best centre backs in the world? Uh, yeah, it's, that's alright to say.
2: Uh, but,
4: I think, we've seen, <laughs> sorry, more, sorry the we've seen more,
2: we've seen more of Robertson. Uh, we've seen a full season of Robertson. Uh, actually, no, sorry, I'm wrong. We've, we've only seen a month more Robertson. You know what? Yeah. <laughs> uh,
1: 25, 25 Premier League games now Robertson started with I, us we've conceded 18 goals
2: I think uh, it's just about being fair right I think give if if you want to class world class as a player like Van Dijk and Robertson okay that's cool but if you're saying that, that suddenly means that they're as good as Rafa Varane I disagree there uh, I'd say Rafa Varane is the best defender in the world at the moment and comparing other players to him and saying that they're on his level is a step too far for me but if you want to say that they're on that level of being able to push into that 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 top five in the world bracket uh or a top two in the the premier league yeah that, that's a fair judgment to make on what we've seen but then if you want to say Varane or if you want to say Hansen, Maldini yep Stan Beresi, that's 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 a bit silly if I'm honest and that's the issue that I, that, that I have and that's why I thought I'd I'd make this point with the article that we're going over the top. If you want to say world-class pushing that, that, that bracket, yeah, that's fair enough. That, that's cool. But as soon as you go into these, these, these silly comparisons, that's where we've got to rein it in and say, come on, let's be realistic here. Let, 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 let's
1: give each player their fair dues. I do agree, Dito. I completely agree with you on that.
0: Scott, what's what's your take on all this and Van Dijk and the hype as a whole? But also, do you consider him sort of the glue? Um, to our defensive improvement, even though what the pitch was improving, getting a bit rosier post that Spurs, um, defeat, or do you think, you know, okay, we're overhyping him, he's still good, but actually, you know, as we've said, there's a lot of other factors. Van Dyke is only half the, the piece of the pie.
3: Okay, so to kind of start with that first one, um, with regards to kind of, uh, potential other changes and Van Dyke, I wrote an article on Joe Game as, uh, about a couple of weeks ago now, and one of the interesting things to come out was how Gomez and Moreno compared to other Premier League centre-backs had many more ground jewels per game and they were much, much higher than Alexander-Arnold and Robertson so you've kind of got the almost the pre-Van Dyke, post-Van Dyke split how our full-backs were being used kind of the Alexander-Arnold and Robertson who were the full-backs primarily after Christmas and then Moreno and Gomez who are our full-backs primarily before and the difference in ground jewels I think is indicative of two things. Firstly, it's the team are defending better, so the fullbacks are probably less exposed. And then also the fact that the fullbacks themselves are potentially defending perhaps more smartly, getting involved in less ground rules, and then by default exposing our centre-backs less. Um, so I think that's kind of a team, potentially indicative of a team-wide defensive change that you can get from the stats that does point to a, a kind of a wider, the team has improved defensively, the centre backs are less exposed defensively, so then that comes into the individual error side of things, and then also that sort of as a whole, potentially we might also be getting kind of the Van Dyke experience, the Van Dyke, the leader, just kind of in guys' ears, more communication in the field. If someone's running at Gomez or, or sorry, if someone's running at Alexander Arnold, Van Dyke might be in his ear, just you drop off, drop off, and then we get a little bit more communication with the defence. That might be a part of it, um, and to the kind of the the, the the big focus on the errors. I, I do think that if you go through a game with the sort of the fine tooth going that we've been employing when looking at Van Dyke, you're probably going to see with all of these centre backs who we consider high level centre backs occasions where they let strikers find a bit of space because they've been caught slightly ball watching, uh because they get a bit flat footed. Just be, and let's face it, the strikers, these players that they're playing with are not themselves bad players. They they've been the the attackers have been schooled in being able to just create small amounts of space from def- off defenders in order to create chance for themselves. So that's that's how they make their money, the defenders make their money limiting those spaces. The fact of the matter is I think is that Van Dyke, for the most part, actually doesn't allow those situations to develop. Um, and he's not making the time um, the kind of big errors that we saw from Moreno, Lovren, uh Mignolet, Karras, obviously, in the Champions League final, those kind of things. But, and then you go back and back and you say, guys like Martin Skirtle, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that requires us not only to kind of be cognizant of the fact that we're going through these games with a fine-tooth comb and therefore we're going to spot small errors being made, strikers having a little bit of space, him being caught ball-watching from time to time, But it's also demands for us to kind of appreciate that we have to differentiate between not just the result and the the end point of errors and actually the nature of the error itself. I think just from kind of a bit of my background writing and studying American football, there's some really good stat sites that do look to create that grading process. Like guys might have a bad play that has a good ending and they'll be graded negatively, or they might have a kind of a, a less bad play that doesn't really appear and have a slightly worse grade. Although I have a really good play with a bad ending and it would still be positively graded. So I think the good, the thing that we need to try and achieve when we're looking at these errors is to be as objective as possible and say, look, he's let a guy come over his shoulder in the 95th minute of a game. So that's not what you want. But in the grand scheme of errors and the consistency of his performances, that's probably not an, something that we should be sort of knocking him massively for. And for that reason, when it comes to talking about how he fits kind of in the world order, um, it's really difficult once you start bringing the names like Maldini, Stam, Baresi in, because those guys have got, in some cases, 20, in Maldini's case, like 20 years of excellence. Which is, it's just, it's, it's ridiculous how good he was. Um, but in terms but if you kind of looked at like six games of Maldini playing very, very high level, you, you can kind of see why some people be like, yeah, okay, six games of Maldini doing really well, six games of Van Dyke doing really, really well. They've got the same ability to just shut forwards down. They've got the same ability to lead a defence. They've got the same ability. It seems to just create kind of an aura and a presence around them that's a, both a positive for their, for their teammates and the negative the opposition side. So I can see why it gets said, but it just becomes very difficult with those guys because they've got the longevity of performance. to, the, to people like Varane, I clearly, again, you've got the longevity that the three Champions League titles, the World Cup winner, But he also got excellent players all around him. I think that the the reality is is that all these guys are almost impossible to kind of differentiate at the 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 smallest level, other than by going, oh yeah, Mm -hmm. but he's three Champions Leagues. He's he's not won anything yet. It's just on based on their performances, what we're seeing. We're seeing two guys who are excellent on the ball. You couldn't really choose between if you probably you probably take Van Dijk on the ball. You've got two guys who are excellent in the air. You've got two guys who seem to all. When I was the defenders around these, he have got two guys who who who've still got plenty of years ahead of them. So it becomes very difficult to compare and I don't think it's unreasonable to compare Van Dyke to those players based on how well he's performed, the lack of errors that he's made, and the fact that actually he's he's on a worse team than those guys. And I think that's also something to to think about and to not let ourselves be kind of overthink the fact that so and so's won these trophies, so and so's won that trophies. Let's think about kind of what they're doing on the field, how they're how they're doing their job. Um uh, Yeah. How they're doing their job
0: compares to compared to the other guys around them. All right, um, Hamza, I'll give you a, a very brief chance to sort of overview and give your final comments before we um, take a quick break. So, a- anything you have to add?
2: Um, not much, really. I I just feel that that point about uh, grand Jules is really uh, is one that I didn't think about, but actually it makes sense when you think of um, the way that we pressed pre-December-ish and post-December. We're pressing a lot more, a lot more aggressively, uh, further up the pitch. And I think in some ways that probably helped our defensive stats too. We were pretty poor in that first half of the season. Then you look at that City game as a, an example and then the games that followed that. And we're really good. And I think we should consider that and the performance as a team alongside Van Dyke. We, sh- we should give credit to the team as a unit. And that's the real message I want to like focus on here for when people think about this article. It's that give the team the credit. Uh, Van Dyke is really good, but he's not great, and he might be great one day, but, but not yet. So let's persist with him, see, see how he goes, uh, applaud him when he does well. If he doesn't do well, we say, alright, uh, areas to improve. Uh, but when we did playing well, uh, we should say Robertson, well done. Gomez, well done. Lovren, well done. Trent, well done. Midfield, great. Uh, I, I think that's a way to, to go about it. We should be as fair as possible to the rest of the team. Uh, because they do the work as well and they're not getting the credit that I think they deserve.
0: All right, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with plenty more.
4: Hi, Jan. How are you? Um, is everything okay? Yeah, absolutely, Gags. Everything is fine. But you know what? I'm hearing you've got a special offer for Anfield Index Pro. Is that so? Yes, absolutely, and We've got. Your weekly show Moby on the spot the popular stat show under pressure post match raw is now back and loads of other shows available at our lowest price ever. Go on then Gax. How cheap is that? Get this mate, get this. It's absolutely free for 7 days and then only 39.99 for a whole year. New users can now sign up and access everything at amfordindexpro.com. I have to say Gax, that is incredible news. I got to go. Where are you going? Well, to be fair, I need to go and tell Rushy about this offer. <laughs> Thanks. Whilst you're there, please let Rushy know that we accept all major credits and debit cards via the website. And not only that, we've now added PayPal too. And if you want an app option, then via iOS you can purchase AI Pro through an in-app purchase. Yan? Yan?
0: Right, so to discuss the second article, uh, we've got Scott Geelan, who's written on Michael Owen. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a debate that's very much up for opinion. Um, a lot of people have, have differed on, on which side of the fence they stand. But Scott, do you want to talk us through Michael Owen and, and those comments he made in, in that interview? I think it was on BT Sport.
3: Yeah, it was. it was. I think it was after the Liverpool game. It was, it was interesting how it kind of all came about because I've only really seen the interview, but it seems it wasn't kind of a planned chat with Michael Owen about his career, but that's kind of what it became. Um, and kind of a, a very interesting insight into his psyche throughout his career, really, but especially regarding kind of the latter period. But I think if you read between the lines, it was, it was very interesting to see kind of how kind of almost from, from the very beginning of his career with a few things that he said, there was a real fear. Um, about you know what was to come, a real fear about injuries, and I think that was the big one. It was the the how how the injuries robbed him of of kind of who he was. I think there were some very interesting comments where he, he said sort of I wasn't me, I lost everything because of the injuries, and I think that's the the interesting thing about specifically the first comment when he said I wasn't me. Um, was he actually said that in dis- when discussing his first hamstring injury and i think that was in the 1998 1999 season And um, he and he described the fact that back then when it, when when you suffered those sort of injuries unless it was a tendon the surgeons wouldn't actually operate so he spent his his career from the age of 19 uh on two hamstrings in one leg and three on the other So and that was all had already impacted his physical abilities his pace which had been the thing that kind of drove him and, and really powered him to, to being such a standout player early in his career, was never the same again. And and you kind of realised over the course of the interview how this is quite a stark reality, that the Michael Owen that he kind of thought about and he sort of knew himself was the 18-year-old Michael Owen that came onto the world stage in Saint-Etienne. And by the time he was 19, 20, it wasn't the same player. Um, and then kind of faced, as his career went on, it starts give you a much more clear understanding of why certain decisions were made that, that were made and why, and they were hev- heavily critiqued decisions. Uh, li- leaving Liverpool, for example, um, you kind of understood what, well, what well, the first thing is, is he, he, he seemed to have be his physical peak when he was 18 and 19, won the Ballon d'Or, uh, when he was, I think, 22. Um, and then you think, okay, so, and then a few years down the line, Liverpool are stagnating, just appointed a new coach, who by counts he didn't see really eye-to-eye with his contract was running down. And he's already facing this spectre of, I'm not the same guy who I was. I'm getting slower. This isn't who I, I'm not the player that I once was. And then Real Madrid come calling and go, and he's like, right, here's a chance to be a Galactico, potentially reignite the glory is. But already uh, uh, three years ago, two, three years ago, and they haven't been the same since. And then comes back, to, wants to come back to Liverpool. We already knew about that. It didn't happen. And then the United change, I think is another, just trying to kind of almost get back to the old Michael Owen level, the, 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 the top end of the Premier League, the Champions League, the glory, the packed out arenas, the fans singing his name. And it just never, it never happened. I think the reality was it seemed from the, from the interview that that was, the career was in decline from the age of 19. It was, it was just kind of him trying to accept that process. Struggling through the reality of the fact that he wasn't who he was when he broke onto the scene throughout his whole career, and was kind of always trying to get back there, get to that level, and and never be able to do it, and then ultimately not being able to wait to retire because he just he just couldn't.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because as I said, it's it's very very opinion based, and some people have come in and and they've said, you know, this is a guy who suffered so many injuries. Why? Why aren't we feeling sorry for him? Because as you said, his, his career was sort of in decline from, from very early on because his muscles just couldn't keep up and and his career sort of spiraled from there. What was once a very, very good player um, w- was taken away by injuries. And, and so you've got that sad aspect of it. But then other people will say, you know what, this this is a guy who did the, did the dirty, went to Man United. Um, and actually, I think in the interview, he doesn't even mention Man United, which is the thing that leaves a sour taste. He, he never really reflects on what that would have been like for Liverpool fans. And okay, it would have been hard for him as well because he wanted to go back to Liverpool. But he, the fact he didn't reflect on it, some people have, have said, you know, that, that's left a sour taste in his loyalty and, and things. Hamza, where, where do you stand on this? Are you sort of a, of the emotional side and of the, the injury side in that, you know, Michael Owen, it was, it was maybe a last gasp. God, I just want to be the player I once was. Or is it a case of, I guess it depends on what you think of of the likes of Fernando Torres, who also went away to to rival clubs, who for me is seen seen pretty differently. I I actually really still love Fernando Torres, but I know a lot of people don't, and they see him as as the guy who sort of performed the ultimate betrayal. Is that how you see Michael Owen?
2: Uh, Very much the former. Uh, I do really feel for him when it comes to injuries. And I think when you're as good as he was, and you get that one last chance to play at a top club, even if it is Manchester United, as a player, as a professional footballer, as someone of the highest level, you've got to take that uh, for your own sake, for your own career, uh, uh, for footballing reasons, because that that's the right move for a, a player who has an elite man- mentality, who, who wants to be the best if your club isn't taking you, he, he he can't literally go to to Liverpool and force a move. Uh, he 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 tried, and uh, maybe it's because I I don't quite remember the 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 being there when or, or the news when it came in of, of Owen forcing the move because when it comes to players like uh, Fernando Torres or Coutinho, uh, even Suarez, I have, I have less time for that because they the way that they. They manufactured their moves. Less so Suarez, but more so Coutinho and Torres really did leave a really very bitter taste of my, uh, in Liverpool mouths as a collective. And, and yet they still, when he, I remember, uh, Gerard's testimonial match, I think with, with Carriga's team, both Torres and Suarez were there. They got a lovely round of applause from the Anfield crowd. They still get lovely messages on Twitter. Uh, they still get those occasional love letters from, from, from fans in the forms of articles or, uh, and, and so on. Oh, I wish we could see Torres play again. But, uh, you, you don't see that sort of thing when, it, when it comes to Owen and I, I don't think that's right, personally. Uh, it's not as if you moved directly to, um, Manchester United. Uh, it's not as if he didn't try to move back to Liverpool. We've seen legends before that have actually moved away from Liverpool and come back. Ian Rush did it. Uh, he's still love, he's still a, a club ambassador, club icon. Uh, and I think we don't afford Owen I mean, the, the same amount of, um, love and affection that we give to other players that have done similar or worse. And I think that's unfair on him. I'm not going to say that we should completely forgive him and say, oh yeah, let's have Owen back as our number one ambassador. He should be absolutely everywhere. But I do think for what he gave him as a professional, uh, we should cut him a bit of slack because, uh, he was a yeah. fantastic player in his prime. Uh, he did the job for Liverpool really, really well. And, uh, who can blame a player for m- moving to Real Madrid? Uh, we've seen top players move from the Premier League to Real Madrid, hit, hit different levels, completely different. Uh, and that's great for their career. That's great for them as individuals because that's what they can tell their friends, their family. This is where I went. These are the cups that I won. The big trophies. Uh, the ones that you couldn't see Liverpool winning at that time. Uh, no one saw the Champions League uh, win coming, uh, absolutely no one. So you can't blame a player for thinking, oh, we should leave there. Uh, I, I should go to a club like Real Madrid with their history and tr- tradition and culture, Uh especially when a player like Fernando Torres is afforded a bit more sympathy and he forced a move to Chelsea who weren't really looking as if they were going to uh, take the world apart the same way that you expect Real Madrid, by Munich, Barcelona to do. So I just think... A bit of fairness, a bit of rationality there. And I think we should cut owing that slack. But I will say, I didn't see that firsthand because I was quite young when it happened. Uh, so I can yeah. understand why, why people are quite upset and still angry over it. I,
0: I, I think, um, you, you've raised some good points there. And I, I think in terms of Real Madrid, um, Rafael Benitez obviously, uh, sort of mentioned to the player, are you loyal to this club? Why, why was I then offered you? When I was at Valencia, but no one, as, as you said, no one could really blame him for making that move to Real Madrid. Liverpool weren't in, in the best of ways and Real Madrid's such a powerhouse. so many players still now, you know, really w- would do anything to go to Real Madrid and play there. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily sort of annoyance or blame place for him leaving Liverpool then. It was more the fact that, um, Carl Kopak, who, who we have quite a lot on this show, uh, wrote an article for the Anfield Wrap and he took Quite a different stance on things because he said you know why should we have sympathy for Owen because when he wanted to come back when his heart was set on Liverpool who cares because you know Liverpool were in a different world okay the 2005 uh, Champions League win wasn't expected you couldn't have seen it coming but at that time Liverpool then you know we had Fernando Torres we had Steven Gerrard we had that connection and so for Owen to come back it, it didn't really suit the club and Maybe that's why he did end up going to Old Trafford. That was his his move to to reignite something after Newcastle. Um, but Tom, what's your thoughts? Because obviously a, a move to Man is never going to go down well with the with the fans. Um, it didn't really work out for him in the end. But is it a case of actually timing's quite a big factor as well? This is a player who has openly said he wanted to come back to Liverpool. He would fight tooth and nail to come back. But by the time he you know he wanted to, and that was potentially an option. Liverpool had actually moved ahead.
1: I think there's three or four different things to factor in here. I think the first thing to say, the injury thing is obviously absolutely horrible. You look at his career and it reminds me actually not not obviously not to the same extent, but there's there's a shade of Daniel Sturridge in that in that you know, he obviously Dutch Sturridge didn't win the Ballon d'Or when he was twenty one. But um, you know, Owen won that Ballon d'or when he was twenty one, he was in the peak of his career, and then as 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 Scott says slowly but surely his career started to drift away from him to the point where when he was 24, 25, 26 he already felt like injuries had ruined his career and his career was over and that's something that we've seen over the last four years with Daniel Sturridge you know he hit 20, 23, 20 23 was you know the prime of his career and then 24, 25, 26 which you know should be approaching the prime of his career same with Owen it felt like the end of his prime and that's something that I think is obviously really really sad and really upsetting <sighs> But there's two other things that I kind of disagree with, here. and the first thing is, I don't like the suggest. Uh, I don't like the suggestion of sympathy and loyalty. Because here's the thing: it's very, very easy to be loyal to Liverpool when you want to come back. When we're doing well, when you want to come back, you want to come back when we won the Champions League. You want to be loyal when we won the Champions League. You want to be loyal when we've amassed a team good enough to win the title. That's when you want to be loyal. But you don't want to be loyal when we're suffering, when we're not playing well, when we're not doing well. And that's understandable. Like, that's not, I mean, that's not something necessarily to be criticized for, but you can't then turn around and talk about how much you wanted to play for us and talk about loyalty when that's what you've done. I'm um, so, you know, you can, you can say, you can say, you, you can say you don't blame him for doing it, but for him to turn around and talk about how much he loves the club, how much he hated leaving, how much he wants to come back, all this, you can't play the sympathy and the loyalty card when you, Messed us over to get a move out in the first place. I'm sorry, you can't do that. You can't, you know, if someone like if someone like Coutinho in two years' time turned around, oh, I was desperate to come back to Liverpool, but they wouldn't buy me. You would tell them to bugger off. If someone like, you know, if Sterling turns around in five years' time, was like, oh, I was desperate to come back to Liverpool? No, Suarez maybe, but even then, even then, even then with the Suarez thing, you'd still be like, whoa, well, if you were that desperate to come back, you shouldn't have forced your way out in the first place. And that's what Owen did. He, what he did was akin to what Sterling did, was akin to what Coutinho did. It was basically. Messed so messed about the club, deliberately drove down his contract, so we'd have to sell him for a meagre price. Because, and I can understand how the injury thing affected his psyche, but that that doesn't mean that what he did was any better. He he, you know, he messed around the club to get what he wanted, and then has the you know has the stones to turn around and talk about loyalty. And the other thing is, um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about I'll talk about the night thing in a second. Owen is interesting because he's sort of in that middle calibre between modern and sort of older football club football players you know you, when you talk about Liverpool legends you think of the likes of Fowler, Rush, Dalglish, you know, they're from a different time when football was different and then in the modern day you don't expect loyalty from players in the modern day players are a bit more mercenary because players have a different sort of structure and Owen's interesting and in that he's sort of slap bang in the middle of that so he's not quite one of those old you know Liverpool Liverpool, the club is the club, we're a family, but he's also not the sort of the new, you go where the money takes you kind of player, which is really interesting. All of that being said, there's no excuse for the Man United thing. I'm, I'm sorry, there just isn't. I, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be but you know, we can, well, you can't compare it to Torres, you can't compare it to Coutinho, you can't compare it to Sterling, because you can, it's not about going to another big club. It's not about going to a, a rival for trophies. It's about the fact that it's Liverpool and Man United. Man United are the one club that you don't turn around and go and play for. Yeah. You can say, you know, if Owen had gone to Chelsea, if Owen had got, you know, I don't blame Owen for going to Real Madrid. I have in my shirt, I have a Michael, I have a Michael Owen Real Madrid shirt in my wardrobe because I don't, you know, I don't hate him for going to Real Madrid. I don't hate Owen period for the record, but I don't, you know, I admired Owen when he was at Real Madrid. Owen was one of those players who I loved growing up. So for him to turn around and play for Man United is a stab in the back, is a stab in the back, a stab in the throat. It's, you know, if he understood Liverpool Football Club, if he understood what Liverpool Football Club was about, and if he understood what Liverpool Football Club stood for, he wouldn't play for Man United. For me, it, you can understand why he did it, but you can also understand why he did it and lose that respect. You can understand it and you can appreciate it. But you can't feel the same way about someone after that. That's the thing. It's not necessarily about treating him objectively and treating him fairly, because Liverpool Football Club is more than that. And, you know, to play for Man United is just, for me, is just something that you can't get over, whether or not he deserves to be treated. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. I mean, I think you've raised some some really good points there. And actually, you know, you've spoken about about the fact that, OK, you weren't, sort of annoyed at him for going to Real Madrid, but maybe it was the manner in which the contract wound down. The move sort of only seemed to serve him because Liverpool weren't left with enough time to get someone in. Um, and yeah, and, and he didn't announce his intentions earlier. He was quite happy just to sit on it and, and wait. Um, Scott, what's, what's your thoughts on that? And, and particularly uh, Manchester United, I guess. And you know, you say in the article, uh, as Tom said there, you were a big, big fan of Michael Owen. You sort of grew up and you had the Umbro boots because Michael Owen had them. How did it feel when he went to Manu? And And is there that grudge? Or you, I mean, your article, you seem to be pretty over it and, and not very you know, sort of... Tom described it as a, a stab in the throat, a stab in the heart. You don't really seem to take that stance.
3: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I, I, I've, I've found... I dislike the fans of Manchester United more than I dislike the club. I think it's not that I don't dislike them, but I have a real respect for them, especially under Sir Alex, what they're able to achieve. Um, I think the reality was, is for a long time, you wanted Liverpool to be where Man United were. You wanted the longevity with the manager. You wanted to be attracting the players that Manchester United were attracting. You wanted the success that Manchester United had. So I think it, it, in some respects, I, it was kind of like a, I was unhappy about the move. I would much have preferred him to be at Liverpool. There, there wasn't a club in the country I would have less liked him to be at, but I could understand it because I think I, I mean, I imagine much like him, there was a, a great, cause he's sort of spoken about how Sir Alex was a, was really important to that move. There was a, a, a kind of, for me, there's kind of just a begrudging respect for, for Manchester United under, under Sir Alex Ferguson. Um, that, uh, enabled me to, I think, understand his his position on it a little bit more and and just and accept it a little bit more. It's not something that I'll get over, but I think there was a lot. Uh, kind of my opinion is obviously that he is he was trying to get back to the the, the old Michael Owen level, get back in uh, under the big lights basically. And if 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 the 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 biggest country, the biggest club in the land at the time, the most successful. With the most successful manager in British football were going to come that uh, I can understand why he did it. I think, um, is, is my kind of stance on it. I just, I just, sorry. Oh, sorry. No, you you speak. I can. No, sorry. I thought you were done. No, carry Uh, on. And, 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 and the loyalty one as well. it's, It's a difficult one because I think it is, it is tough to kind of obviously you can say it he was loyal to the club when they won the Champions League and obviously the year after that they won the FA Cup but if the, the fact of the matter was he, he did want to come back to Liverpool when he was coming back to the UK and I think it's 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 unfortunate almost that Liverpool won those won those won those tournaments at that point because I think I don't think that was the reason why he wanted to come back I think it was a, it was a coincidence because he continually wanted to come back to Liverpool there was continual discussions about it it was in his contract Um I find, it's, it, I find it, I find it a little, I don't, I personally, my opinion of him is not one that's, that suggests that his loyalty to Liverpool was a result of those successes and nor was it, it boosted by those successes. It, it The reality was he wanted to come back to Liverpool and those successes were also happened to be occurring at that time. Maybe if Liverpool were like 10th in the league or something or, or well down then maybe, maybe he might not have been, maybe that, maybe he might not have been so interested in it. But I think I find difficult that that, the kind of the idea that the loyalty was was just once the club were doing well. I think he he'd he was loyal beyond that sort of beyond 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 just the titles. I think there was a genuine a genuine desire to come back and um return basically. But that yeah.
1: One one thing I did just want to say with just quickly with regards to Fergie is my personal take on Fergie was always, and with respect to, you know, Man United being the biggest team in the land, all that kind of stuff, it's easy, it was much, much easier to admit when he was gone. That's the way I found it. I found I absolutely despised Fergie, absolutely loathed the man, could not stand him, didn't, I maybe didn't, maybe I respected him, but I didn't, but once he was gone, I felt that. I wouldn't have said I felt that while that was happening. And also, I think, you can say fine, Objective United were the biggest team in the land at the time, but if for a Liverpool fan, to not just admit that, but to go and play for them, I think, is not is not the point, if that makes sense. It's not the fact that you can objectively say that United were the biggest team in the land so much as if you're a Liverpool fan, you shouldn't be thinking that, and if you're a Liverpool fan, you almost didn't respect I my take on it was as a Liverpool fan, I didn't respect it until it was over, is my take on it.
3: Yeah, I think I think that's where we differ. And the other thing I think that we do that that we have to think about as fans is that players do have to view it slightly differently when we and i think it's again it's to your point about the 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 kind of the change in football almost as Michael Owen was playing how he kind of straddles the two club man loyal areas which 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 basically as liverpool as a liverpool fans we we have had almost the kind of the last dregs of with with Steven Gerrard and Jamie Carrick, you know big kind of one club men that there really haven't been any in in english football since those guys retired and we were one of the last clubs to have those types of players. And I think it's, so it's, it's difficult as a fan, I think to criticize players for thinking a little bit more in a little bit more of a business sense and a little bit more of a, a career achievement, attainment sense. Um, because we ultimately, we're not in those shoes. We are fans and therefore our loyalty is much more fixed. Our, Our, our kind of, our our dislikes are much more set in stone um, than than I think than I think the modern day footballer is, and 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 you could say Owen was unfortunate in that he did straddle the era that he he was in, and and that that Liverpool were are one were one of the last clubs to have those players that were of, of his generation of his kind of academy class who who were great great kind of one club men, um, at a time when the concept of a one club man is is, is basically gone and is, is, is basically gone from football. Pam, yeah. We,
0: what, what's your take on this before we, before we round off?
2: I largely agree with, with, with Scott. I mean, when you're a player of that ability, you, you definitely should not be playing at Newcastle as they were then. They were not good enough for him. He was a player that should have been winning Champions League and Premier League titles, or league titles wherever he was. And as a professional, he's, he's got to realize that. And I think the, the injuries only serve to, to emphasize that to him, that he has got to take his moment to, to win as many trophies or try and win as many trophies and, and have a legacy in the game, uh, as quickly and as much as he can before his body gave out on him. And I think, uh, as a professional, you, you, you've got to respect that. Uh, and I think as fans, we've got to say, all right, I don't like it, but, if I was in the same position as well, uh, like I, I'm not going to be a footballer, but I do a bit of coaching. You know, if I got a coaching offer, a job offer, I don't know to to help Jose Mourinho, I'd take it. I, I mean, uh, if, if you guys do a bit of work, a uh, bit journalism, bit be, bit be, be working where, wherever you do, if you got a job with one of these top clubs, we take it. That that is the right move, no matter how strident we are, Liverpool fans. We've got to admit that that's probably the right move, even if we don't like it. I'm not going to say I'm going to roll up to Manchester United working for, uh, for Jose Mourinho with a Manu flag, uh, on, on the back of my car window with a Manu scarf and pogrom on the back of my shirt. No, but as a professional, uh, you've got to just take that into consideration. I think that's probably what we should say, but then again, this is a fan discussion. Uh, and it's perfectly fine if you're a fan and you say, Michael Owen, I don't want any of him, but to deny him his place in Liverpool history, uh, to say that he shouldn't be an ambassador, uh, I think is maybe a bit far because I think in the time that he was at Liverpool, he served us well and he didn't, he didn't disgrace the club in the way that he left. It wasn't like what Coutinho did where he refused to play, uh, he refused to play again and then when offered, uh, a contract for the re- for half of the season to play, uh, on, on loan for Liverpool and, uh, and have a move to Barcelona. He said, no, I want to move now. That, that's the sort of behavior you don't want to see. You don't want to see what Torres did where he forced it through, uh, despite the manager wanting him to play with Suarez. Uh, that's not what you want to see. Uh, and the way that Owen has conducted himself in the years following on from his retirement, And even his years at Manchester United, he he never really said anything about Liverpool. Uh, And in the time that he does talk about Liverpool, it's usually, uh, I I can't say for all the times that he spoke, I haven't listened to him all the time, uh, it's usually praise and it's usually admiration. And I think uh, we should cut him a bit of slack there.
0: All right, um, we'll round off there. I think a lot of good points have been made in in both the Van Dyck and the Owen discussion. Um, Just briefly, in, in terms of that ambassador role, I think it's, Sometimes it's less of a reflection on Owen himself than the fact that you've got players who were huge fan favourites and, and people like Daniel Lager who aren't ambassador. And so people just want to see them in, in those type of roles. Um, but but yeah, we'll round off there. So Hamza, I'll go to you first for um, for some plugs.
2: Um, So the Van Dyke piece that's still on the site, if you want to read it, I I hope that you read it and do uh, give it a comment and just try and be... Uh, approach with an open mind is probably what I'd say. If you disagree, that, that's cool, but I just thought I'd try to open a discussion into this. Uh, also, tactical pieces will be out uh, as they are. The Brighton one's up at the moment. The Leicester one will be up, uh, after the game next week. And I'll be on, I hopefully should be on the, the Tactics Weekly podcast. So tune into that. Oh, and I'm currently on the, um, Leroy's, uh, tactic, talking tactics show as well. So, uh, I'm on the site quite a bit. Uh, yeah, that, that's me.
0: Yeah, don't don't get um, swayed off by the fact that the uh, Van Dyke article has a has a strange title. Do get a give it a read. It's very very detailed and a great read, no matter what your opinion is. Um, Scott, how about you? Anything coming up?
3: Um, nothing at the moment. I think I tend to have to have some inspiration from something that happens in a game or an, an interview like this to just sort of come up with something. Um, I would encourage just, to, if you people haven't to go and read the own article. It was from the heart. I was wearing an own shirt at the time. Uh, got right into it. And also, also just with Gomez playing well, um, if you can find it, there's a lot of articles on the, on the site. There uh, the article about, I wrote on Gomez kind of encouraging a bit of patience with him. Um, also saying that I thought he, he could, he could, he could do a good job, which so far he has done a very, very good job. So that, that was positive as well. You can go check that out and just sort of maybe quiz up and then you can just say, you know, I saw it coming anyway.
0: (laughs) You looked into your magic ball. Um, Tom, I know you usually tend to have about a million plugs so I'll let you take it away. Uh,
1: I'm just going to plug plug that robo article i mentioned earlier this week um and then obviously all the usual stuff um but i i don't like plugging all the usual stuff every week so i'll, I'll leave the rest of it for now um yeah no just that robo article i've got coming up um i absolutely love robo i'm gonna get him on the back of my shirt because i just think when robo thing is my favorite robo quote i just i love it was nobody wants the left back shirt because yes i do i do want the left back shirt i want the left back shirt a lot shirt a lot yeah
0: he's i uh, i think he's a real fan favorite now um but yeah, I mean, all the writers and, and Tom and myself as well, our Twitter handles will be on the tweet that goes out with this pod. And I think you can also find them on the app. Um, so definitely check check them out if you haven't already. From from my point of view, I've got a couple of articles out at the moment. So first off, I've looked at Fabinho. Um, Tom mentioned it in one of his articles the other week um, about this idea and, and need for patience. But I thought I'd delve into it a little bit deeper, look at this plan of adaptation that we used for Oxlade-Chamberlain and Robertson himself and how Klopp is doing the same thing with Fabinho, hopefully to the same effect. So if you haven't read that one, go check that out. And I've done a piece on Van Dijk myself, um, just just looking at whether Liverpool now have a defence that's ready to underpin the title challenge. So while I've taken into account that some of the points we've made on the pod and some of the points Hamza's made about different different aspects such as Andy Robertson and, and Trent and Gomez. I've looked at whether Van Dijk is that glue, maybe, and the improvement that we've made under him and, and how good he's been. Um, other than that, I, I would advise you all to check out the Kenny Dalgleish podcast if you haven't already. Brilliant stuff by Gags and, and everyone involved um, with Paul Dalgleish and Kenny Dalgleish himself. And I think there's a part two to come out in the in the coming days or next week. Um, so so definitely check that out I think it's free at the moment um, and then part 2 will be just for subscribers so if you haven't got a subscription to AI Pro definitely get it because that pod is worth it alone um, and I'm sure I'm earning brownie points with gags for plugging that um, but yeah thank you for listening and thank you guys for coming on and we'll see you next week
1: Podcast Network.